Welcome to Arc Next Sessions, episode 47. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-host, Donna and Kent. Amelia won't be joining us today as she is at home taking care of a cold. Today's podcast is sponsored by BQE Software, the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software built with the needs of architects in mind. It'll help you manage people and projects while you focus on designing great architecture. And for a limited time, all startup architectural firms that have been established within the last 24 months qualify for two free licenses of ArchiOffice Online for one year. Go check out this offer at bqe.com forward slash startups. So today our special guest is Jorge Otero Payilos. Jorge is an architect, artist, and preservationist. He is also a professor and newly appointed director of the Historic Preservation Program at Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture. Additionally, he is the founder and editor of the journal Future Anterior, a peer-reviewed historic preservation journal. Jorge, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Happy to be here. So maybe you can uh, start off by giving us a little perspective on your stance in, in uh, originality in, architect in, in architecture and design and copyright issue. Uh, I know that you recently spoke about this at the Law X Copy Symposium at the Center for Architecture in New York. Yes, and we also launched a special issue of Future Interior on the subject of copyright and preservation. And the reason why we did that issue was because so much of the discourse on, you know, copyrights in, in architecture have to do with a question of intellectual property of, you know, the, the, the sort of the idea of intellectual property as coming from a particular person or being the property of a particular person. And preservation is just a different situation because we're usually working with objects that are already existing and we're transforming them in different ways in order to preserve them and in, in order to make them endure. So what we were really interested in is, you know, what is the nature of the work of the preservationist? Can it be considered original or even is the question of originality the right way of asking what the preservationist does? So I would say, Jorge, that this topic comes up sometimes in public art. And in fact, right now in Arconnect, there's a news item about a mural in Detroit that the artist is going to court to see if she can get the mural saved, even though the building is now for sale. So I think it, to me, it sort of goes to the idea that architecture is a public art. And once it becomes public, it exists not only for the client or for the architect who designed it, but for the community. So within the field of preservation, of course, there's, there are questions about who we're preserving the building for. And to me, it seems we're, we're often we're preserving it for the community to enjoy. And then that question then leads to, so what period of time do we want to preserve to when you get into very technical issues, of course, of preservation and, and historic buildings? Do you see that sort of relationship within the art that you do as well, that it becomes more of a, a community property rather than just a personal expression of your own work? I think that when you are working on an existing cultural object, obviously the the sense of it is that it belongs to to the public or that at least it is preserved in the interest of the public. But I guess, you know, what I wanted to to maybe have us talk about or or think about is is to go back to this question of of originality, you know, how we are even framing the question. You know, because when we think, for instance, of of what is architecture, right? The medium of architecture, we think of it as the production of various various representations of architecture. And so we think of the origin of architecture as the moment in which we, let's say, put pencil to paper or come up with a new idea or so on. And in preservation, we're constantly thinking 
about this notion of the origin of architecture. But in fact, I mean, I find that in preservation, we, we tend to miss the real moment when architecture emerges. This is a little bit hard to, to present, guys. I mean, I feel like there's, there's a lot of different issues that we're trying to, to discuss, you know, or that, that come to mind when we talk about the question of intellectual property in architecture. And I just want to sort of put aside the, the legalistic question of intellectual property for the moment and to think about this question of, of the origin of architecture, because we typically think of it as, as something that comes, let's say, before the built work. Um, in other words, is the creation of, of some architect's mind and then, you know, it gets translated into drawings and then eventually it makes it into some built form. But in fact, you know, if you look at, for example, the work of people like Gordon Matta Clark, you know, somebody that's working with an existing building, you notice that you can actually intervene into a building that was not considered architecture before and do it in such a way as to install, let's say, architecture within, within the building. And so the relationship between the, the, what I'm very interested in is this relationship between the object and, let's say, the beginning of architecture, that the object in some ways precede the architecture that it, that it might contain. Not sure if that makes any sense, but you know that's, that's something that I'm very interested in. You know, the, the, the relationship between the the sort of conceptualization of architecture or the notion of architecture and the object itself. And uh, we typically think of it as, have, you know, one coming before the other. But in fact, you know, when we look at it from the point of view of preservation, you know, the work itself, the object itself can precede our sense of what archite- of, of the architecture that it might contain. There's a school of thought that says that the only work that's really Michelangelo is the work that he actually painted, applied with his brush. And that everything else is not of that original essence of Michelangelo and therefore is less important, these preservation efforts that came later. Does that relate? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a very interesting case uh, for me because, I mean, when you're working on an existing object, you're constantly having to to deal with the question of what is intrinsic to that object and what is extrinsic to that object. And so, for example, in the Sixteen Chapel ceiling, the decision was, you know, this was a very contentious decision, but the decision was made to assume, let's say, that all the work that Michelangelo did was work done al fresco, that is to say, you know, wet on wet plaster, and that everything else that have appeared to have been applied al secco or with dry paint over the fresco must have come later and must have been done by the hand of somebody else. So when all that was removed, when all that was considered extrinsic, that was part of the cleaning. And when all that was removed and people saw the effect, one of the sort of very odd things that was revealed was that some of the eyeballs of the of the figures were removed. A lot of the highlights around the architectural ornament in the 16 chapel ceiling was removed. And so the, a lot of the features that one would consider intrinsic to what would have been a normal painting, such as like an eyeball, were removed on the basis of this material distinction between what's, what's dry and you know, how it was applied. So that's one example in which you, yeah, when you have a very sort of material 
based distinction about what's intrinsic and extrinsic to the work that in the end resulted in a very awkward expression. And I think that every time that we intervene in an existing object, we're dealing with this, with this, with this question of having the intervention make sense or hold together the object for the general appreciation of the public. So that when you make these distinctions in a too narrow sense, you might lose the, you know, the actual core of what the, of what the work is about. So I think that the, the question which originated with Amelia was, are there architects working today that are trying to sort of take the initiative of, I know this work will be restored in 50 or 100 years. How can I plan now for that kind of, of change to happen and to retain my authorship that, that I am the designer of this building, knowing that over years it's going to be changed? Well, I think that every every architect, in a sense, has to think about this question of of the endurance of their work. And you know, I think the the, the work of architecture is really never finished. I mean, it's constantly being changed from the point of, of its you know manufacture when it's built. You know, there's never really a moment in which the work is you know one could say is is done. I suppose there is right. a moment of photography when when someone <laughs> takes a picture of it, and then that becomes a, a published work. But as as we know, it's it's constantly in a process of of transformation. So picking a moment becomes quite a quite a philosophical problem, and one that you know preservationists are constantly debating about. You know, what is the right. moment of significance? And there is a certain sort of artificiality to that. So I, I'm actually going to pop in here with a different news item that I can't quite refer to properly because I don't remember who it was. But there was just an article about an AIA Chicago award winner changing, photoshopping out some air conditioning equipment on the top of their building. And that, that photograph then becomes the record of the building, even, and it won the award, even though the building that actually exists looks very different. Right. That seems to me like perfectly legitimate, you know, and it goes back to this question of copyright, because, you know, if you look at the way that, for, that, that in, in copyright law, architecture has been defined, it, it, it doesn't really have sort of the building as the, uh, the standard by which to judge the work of architecture. It defines architecture as, as, some, as something that can be expressed in any medium. Right, right. Any tangible medium. That's right. So <laughs> yeah. that photograph is, you know, legally the work of architecture. <laughs> observes the prize. That's a really interesting take that I have not heard in any of the discussion that's been online about this. Interesting. You know, I think that one of the important, you know, this happens all the time with preservation. So for example, people will say, let's bring this building back to pick a date, you know, 1857, right? And they will produce some sort of photograph normally of the building uh, right around that date. And so then the work of preservation becomes this, this, this act of turning the building into its photograph. So one can imagine in the case of this person with this fancy photoshopping of the air conditioners that that's at some point in the future, not maybe not too distant, some preservationists will come and will see that photograph and see those air conditioners and be like, well, we got to, you know, remove the air conditioners to make the building <laughs> match more closely what, you know, this image. I think that's really a fabulous example because it raises the question of, you know, fundamentally, where is architecture? You know, where, where can we, where do we experience it? How do, where does it reside? 
And I, I feel I feel very strongly that architecture is a distributed reality. That our notion that architecture is somehow held together by the by the building is really not not very accurate. And and I often use the example of the Parthenon, you know, to to talk about this because when you when you think of the Parthenon, people think, well, it's on the Acropolis in in Athens. But when you go to Athens, it's actually only a part of the Parthenon is on top. Some of it has been moved down to the museum by Shumi down at the bottom of the hill. And then some other pieces like the Elgin marbles have been moved to London. And then some pieces of the Parthenon are in various museums across Europe. And there's a replica here in the United States. So, you know, where is the Parthenon? This, it's this, you know, wealth of fragments that is thrown about the earth, but we somehow keep thinking about it as having some sort of unity. And I'm, I'm very interested in that. You know, what, what gives unity? If we accept the fact that that photograph of this person, you know, this photoshopped uh, air conditioner is the work of architecture just as much as the building itself, then what, ho- what, what holds these two things together? You know, what is the relationship between that photograph and the building itself? And, and I would suggest that it's, that it's a concept, that it's some sort of idea. I mean, in the case of the Parthenon, it seems to me that that idea it has to do something with Western democracy, that we somehow cannot imagine Western democracy without this, this figure of the Parthenon. And so in our mind, we hold it together, even though physically, materially, it's all over the place. And so my question would be, you know, what, what is the, what is the idea, let's say, that holds together that, that building and that Photoshop image? And I, I feel that we, we don't, we don't often talk about these ideas. You know, we, we're mostly, you know, just looking at that, that, that one image and, takes a lot of work because you got to go to the building and check it out and see what it looks like and then make that comparison and then when somebody sees the comparison and makes the news right it's like whoa (laughs) but every building's like that i mean nice was photoshopping his images i mean not photoshopping but you know yeah Jorge, this is uh, Ken. You know, it took me a while to kind of warm up to what you were talking about earlier, but I wanted to hit on just what you've just suggested about the pieces of the Parthenon being in different locations. I don't know if you've done this yet, but I've gone, I've used Google Earth and the mapping capabilities of uh, where they're, they're aggregating photographs and they're taking their cameras and, and you can actually get a different perspective of different sites all over the world. And one of the things I found, which is very interesting, is that you can actually go to a, a shot. On, I think I've done this on the Parthenon because I've uh, posted these images on Facebook because they're so fascinating. Where the person is, uh, they have a person who stands there with a Google camera is doing a 360. And you'll see the same, in the same image, you'll see a person ghosted in three different places. Or you'll see fragments of the architecture because the camera's panning. And you, do, you don't get a, a really, you get a very distorted and ghosted perspective about uh, based on your experience from that Google perspective. So it really starts to fundamentally alter, adds another layer that wasn't there 100 years ago with a static image from a vantage point and a perspective shot. And it, it really changes my understanding of that space when I see the same person in one particular photograph in three different spots, just based on the panning of that camera over a, a specific time frame. So it's it's really interesting to me that you're talking about that because even the the notion of being in a place, photographing a place, has changed because the nature of how we photograph place has changed. 
Yeah, no, I think this is really fascinating because we are in the midst of a huge transformation of of how we represent architecture and, you know, with with digital technologies and digital photography and and it's completely different than than daguerreotypes or even film photography is it, it is completely different. Yeah. And I'm obsessed with this and this is why for example one of the artworks I did recently was to reconstruct a photograph, you know, from 50 years ago. I tried to reconstruct the photograph that Harold Edgerton took of a speeding bullet going through an apple, which was the first photograph, a color photograph that stopped a bullet in midair right after it had gone through that apple. And to do that, I went and found his rifle and I found his 1942 Burke and James camera, which was one of these accordion cameras with a large format uh, negative and uh, found his strobe light, which he had invented. You know, he was an electrical engineer, invented the strobe and then tried to put all these pieces back together in order to be able to take this photograph one more time, which is one third of one millionth of a second of a photograph. And it took me eight months to do this. So, you know, the whole process of constructing a photograph, it was so interesting to me to do it. And, you know, so different than the way that we're just constantly snapping pictures today, you know, the precision of that. And the most rewarding part, of course, was that I found out that actually Edgerton had reversed the negative when he printed his (laughs) iconic photograph. And I only knew that because once I looked at the at the at the bullet that we shot with his same rifle, a 1903 rifle, we saw that the bullet was spinning in the wrong direction in his photograph. So we could, uh, you know, <laughs> surmise that he had flipped the negative because how else could he get the bullet to spin in the wrong direction? So just the the attention to detail, you know, that that one requires when one looks at a photograph is not enough in a way because the photograph is a world unto itself. You have to be able to sort of step behind the photograph to the construction of the photograph in order to be able to tell what's really in it. And, you know, I think that what you were mentioning before about this sort of multiple capturing of, of, of people in the same person in the, in, in the one photograph seems like a mistake, but in fact, it's, it's, a, it's a, such an interesting, you know, mode of representation because it, it's almost, it's not cubist in that sense, you know, but it yeah. gives us multiple perspectives on the same object and sort of cast it in a completely new light. And I don't think we've come to grips with that, with that yet. But it's so interesting because what the function of the photograph has been to stabilize reality, you know, and to stabilize time, you know, for us and to give us, to help chronology, to help historiography by, create, by punctuating it, you know, with moments. And now with this sort of endless flow of documentation, I, you know, if one takes it seriously, eventually, you know, it, it calls for a different, you know, conception of, of time even. Not unlike, it seems to me, the type of rethinking of time in architecture and space that happened when 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 film came around you know at the beginning of the 20th century and and you know you have various experiments mostly in Europe and the emerging Soviet Union about this but we haven't seen that in architecture yet and you know what we've seen is a type of um, commitment still to the static photograph right the sort of across the street rendering <laughs> of the building which, which to me is anachronistic. So I kind of wanted to guide back to architecture, back to the, you know, the built 
structures. And one of the, the comments I saw on the article was that sometimes people like the idea that basically that what I'm leading to is regionality and, you know, regional styles that some people like that when you go to Paris, not every building is wild and different. They're all five stories tall plus a garret. And, you know, that that kind of lack of originality is something that we enjoy. Can you comment on that at all? Again, bringing the conversation back to actual buildings and uh, uh, what we do. Well, I mean, I think that when you talk about Paris, you're really talking about a historic object. You know, it is, it is a, a designated historic center. So it is very much a, a constructed reality. And we sometimes forget that when we go to Paris and we're like buying our little croissant. And, you know, this is a highly manicured, you know, highly regulated environment and a total invention. I always say that, you know, preservation is a radical idea because part of what preservation entails is constructing new objects that weren't there before. The idea of a historic center is basically a late 19th century, early 20th century idea that really comes into fulfillment after World War II in full force and around the world. But it is essentially a totally incredible thought, an incredible concept to say this amalgamation of buildings that belong to all sorts of different people we're now going to constitute this as a new, let's say we could call it a meta object, and we're going to regulate it as such. And that is a wild idea. I mean, <laughs> you know, we tend to think that in pres- that, you know, there are <laughs> cultural objects, nice cultural things, and then preservationists come and preserve them. But it's such a misconception of what really happens. What really happens is preservationists, you know, dare to dream up new objects. Think of, I mean, if you, let's imagine an even more radical idea than a historic center, a view shed. A view shed does not, you know, exist. I mean, that this was as a, as a regulated object that one can, that one can understand and conceptualize and think of as a historic and cultural object. This was a creation that is amazing because it, you know, a, a, a view shed cuts across the property of so many different people. I mean, and, it, and it's, it's painterly, of course, but so much more than that. So I'm keen to see, for example, in relationship to these new technologies, because a view shed, right? I mean, the view shed comes from a type of painterly understanding of the world. So when we take this notion of, of you know, these Google representations, these new modes of representation, what sort of cultural objects will accompany that type of representation of the world? What sort of, what will we create to help us grasp these technologies? You know, that's what I'm very interested in. I mean, that's the, that's the, I don't think one can talk about that as originality, but I think one can talk about that as creativity, you know, and and there's a fundamental creativity that goes with the act of preservation that we, we seldom imagine because it has to do with constructing objects that are already there. And we typically think of constructing objects as making something that wasn't there before. So, you know, to me, this is really fascinating. Now, if I can circle back to your question about regional architecture, it it seems to me that when you talk about regional architecture and people taking pleasure in experiencing different places, 
what you're really talking about is this notion of the expectations that these objects that we create entail. So when we go to visit the Tower of Pisa, we expect to take a photograph of ourselves with our hands sort of perched in front of us and making it look like we're holding up the Tower of Pisa. It's like when we go to Paris, everyone likes to take that picture of them sort of holding their hand up like they're holding up the 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 Eiffel Tower, you know, just from the tip. And these expectations are built up before we even go to the place. And so I think that for most architects and for most people, part of what travel means is is this frustration of expectations. Because when you get there, in fact, the monuments or these historic cities never deliver what your expectations of them were. You're always disappointed. There's always too many people. It's too crowded. You know, it's like, doesn't work. And I think that's really interesting because you only know what you desire when you are frustrated, you know, when that desire is frustrated. You know, it's funny because I, I did when I went to when I went to Istanbul, I had this a really heightened expectation of of seeing uh, Hagia Sophia, and I was blown away. Yes, by the massiveness and by the beauty of the building, but the experiences I walked away from Istanbul with had nothing to do with that building. It had to do with me walking down into the Hans along between um, along the water and visiting all these districts that tourists never get to see got to see street art that I wouldn't have seen if I'd stayed on the tourist path. So I walked away with a, a fundamentally different experience by going off that beaten path and not letting my expectations, my unfulfilled expectations of, of that particular building weigh me down. And I was actually more, I was able to talk more about my experience of walking through these neighborhoods and seeing these different things, different things that had nothing really architecturally significant about them, but were just fantastic experiences. And you know, when you talk about photographs projects. I mean, I've done my share of um, helping out various photographers for on architecture shoots. And, you know, when you look at a, when you, when I've looked at uh, projects that I've worked on that have been photographed, the thing that's represented in the magazine looks nothing like my experience of the project when I'm actually there. And that's what thing that I've always laughed at is that architectural photography has never really represented what the actual built environment looks like. So when you get there, there is this letdown. It's almost like when I'm looking at, I can never, you can never give someone the experience of looking at a, a Jackson Pollock painting because the, the representation in a book is so out of scale. You have no understanding of the, the depth of that particular work until you get their understanding in front of it at the MoMA that you're like, oh, well, the, actually visiting it is much more important than actually looking at it in a book. But it's, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this idea because I'm always thinking about when I think about preservation and hearing you talk about it, you know, there before using these words and describing what, well, what's before, what is a there in preservation? And then you're talking about new, I'm like, my brain is like percolating with like trying to understand what it is, what is new in preservation when all I'm thinking about is my, you know, my antiquated notions of, well, you're just, you know, preservationists are concerned with preserving what, what, and you're talking about creating a new object. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> So there, there's a couple things that you that you raise that that for me are, are are fascinating. I mean, obviously there is this this question of of the process of creating objects, which happens in in preservation, which is which is related but different than how it's typically conceived of in let's say the other creative fields like art or architecture. And we can circle back to that. But I think that one of the important issues that you raised was this question of experience. Also, that that um, 
you know, we, when you, you know, you were talking about the, the sort of mismatch between the types of experiences that you had of objects or whether you were walking down Istanbul or then the photographs that you were, that, that, that were taken. And I think that it's really important to bring back this discussion of experience because we are not having it very much in architecture schools these days or even in the field. I mean, it's been co-opted by this, but by, you know, in, in the commercial world by these questions of branded environments or themed environments since the 60s and, and 70s up until today. And I think that has created a type of rejection within academia to, to talk about experience. So we're talking about systems, we're talking about representation, and so on and so forth. But in the end, you know, these, are, these representations are experienced in, in a particular way. And we lack the sophistication, I think, to describe experience more fully as something that's not just immediate, but something that is also, you know, spread out over time. Because when you experienced Istanbul, your experience of Istanbul was probably a few years long. I mean, because you started with knowing some images of it, you know, when you first looked at a picture, to creating those expectations of what it was going to be like, then having those expectations be frustrated when you got there, then having a new type of experience unfold that, that was unexpected and and therefore couldn't be frustrated because it was let's say new to you so i think that that all that whole sort of mass of experiences is important to to discuss you know because if we don't then then i think we're missing a huge part of what architecture is you know and i think that if we go back to the to to, to new modes of representation today we can capture this this richness this thickness of experience you know across time in in new in new ways but it's not I think that in order to do that, you need a type of some sort of anchor, some sort of stabilizing thing and, you know, an object, I think that, you know, for most of us, that's how we measure our experience or what we measure it against. And architecture, because it changes so slowly, helps that, you know, it helps to anchor these experiences and helps us to to measure them. So for me, that's like a super interesting and important point to go back to. And, and I, you know, I wish that there was more research being done in this. That was not the sort of old school architectural phenomenology stuff, but that was really looking into the realm of experience more deeply. Like, for example, I mean, I've been designing smells for buildings, you know, <laughs> and, you know, that, that for me is a really important part of architecture that we don't educate anybody on. Um, you know, we are teaching space, and form as if it was 1917. We're teaching theories of color to students, you know, as, as if we were still taking Johannes Eaton's, you know, courses at the Bauhaus. We haven't really talked about smell. The futurists were designing smells for buildings. And when you think of most people's experience of architecture, they will say, you know, it'll come back to them with a smell. You know, they'll be walking down the street and they'll smell something and they'll be like, oh, my God, I'm just I've just been teleported to somebody's house or this moment in time and such and such place. It's very specific, but we're not training anybody to do that. So, I mean, I started this whole line of research to try to develop smells for buildings that would, you know, would be able to enhance our understanding of architecture and 
And this, for me, is one of these, these areas that requires a lot more research. And of course, it's related to memory, which is a huge part of, you know, of, of what preservation is about. And now you're starting to see, you know, I think that how one represents smell, for example, is quite hard, but we're not technologically very far away from being able to digitize and transmit over the internet different smells. So it won't be long before we are able to not only set the expectation, the visual expectations of a building, but also set the olfactory expectations of the building, the acoustic expectations of a building, you know, and, and then that will, I think, create an entirely new understanding of what those of what the potential objects of preservation might be. Jorge, this work that you're doing with smells is, is uh, really fascinating. Can you give us an example of a smell that you've developed for a building and how it can help uh, communicate the architecture. One of the one of the better known smells that I've done is the one for the glass house, Philip Johnson's glass house. I did three smells for that house, and I did it at a particular moment in the house's history. You know, when when Philip Johnson died and he donated it to the National Trust for Historic Preservation, he you know had never really cleaned the house, the glass house. So it was it was dirty inside, and the ceiling in particular was full of tobacco stains full of <laughs> full of all sorts of yellowish stuff. By the way, the glass house doesn't have any operable windows. You know, most people don't think about that, but you can't ventilate the glass house. You have to open the doors in order to do that. So it's a very stinky place. <laughs> but glass doesn't smell, so we typically when we look at that visual of the glass house, we see glass and we think odorless. But when you, you know, the gl- the glass house has a particular smell. So the National Trust was thinking about cleaning that ceiling, and it seemed to me important to keep it dirty. And so the problem was that when people walk off the street and see the dirty ceiling, they think, oh, my God, they're just not taking good care of this monument. And so the, the, the thing for me was to how do we make the stain a meaningful stain, you know, a stain that people can understand as a historically significant intrinsic part of the building. And so I designed the smell of the house when it was built in 49 and then when it aged a little bit in 59 and then when it was, you know, let's say fully worn in in 1969. And the 69 smell was the one that captured more fully the the, the smell of the, you know, the the tobacco and embedded into the plaster and some of the moisture and funguses that were building up in the in the bathroom and the decaying leather and in the bathroom ceiling and, and things like that. He didn't cook very much in the house, even though it has a kitchen. So I, I didn't really put in the smells so much of food. There are some images of of some catered lunches that that he did where he those have been edited out, interestingly enough. Some of the cooks have been cut out of the pictures and and some later because they were black cooks and so he you know cut those out but anyway so like that that's one smell that for me was very important you know because it really began to alter our understanding of the house you know to raise questions about it about the way it was lived in about who it was for about uh, about the kind of architecture itself you know about the our expectations of it as odorless to challenge those expectations to frustrate those expectations because i think it is very important to frustrate those expectations and and so much of what preservationists usually do is to try to meet the expectations of people that come and you know that i i think that's just uh, a way in which it 
let's say lowers the the richness of the experience because you you actually don't realize it when you're when you're there i think in order to realize the experience having it frustrated is an important part of it you know that it's, it's not having the experience it's to realize the experience as a sort of conscious act that i'm interested in so anyway the smell i think is a really important part of this and and one that is really not being taken seriously in 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 architecture schools you know for various reasons but i i, I can tell you that you know the smell industry is is huge. I mean, and it accompanies every household and every building in America from from you know the the smell of you know the lime detergents that are used to the smell of you know food, all the prepackaged food that that is you know frozen food is all artificially you know perfumed. Every material that is being used in architecture has a smell signature, and these are just being combined haphazardly today. Whereas they could be a lot more carefully tuned, so I and I think that when we when we design monuments, then that's that's one of the things that we we also haven't really been exploring. So that's that's part of what I've been trying to push is to to think about that a little bit more. You know, it's funny we're talking about this because one of my favorite memories is going to my grandmother's house, and she lives. Uh, she used to live in Keensburg, New Jersey, which is kind of in the Raritan Bay area of uh, Central Jersey. And I would go there as a kid and I would always have this fragrant smell thinking, and, you know, as a kid, I would just kept thinking, wow, my grandmother has this great garden. This is always fragrant. And then I only realized later as an adult, when I started driving, it was actually not far from where my grandmother lived and just downwind. Uh, well, she was downwind of the plant, but there's a place called IFF, International Flavors and Fragrances. Oh, yes. <laughs> so my understanding of what might what it meant to be going to my grandmother's house was based on a false notion about what she had in her garden. It was really connected to the uh, the, the the fragrance uh, company in not too far in like Union, New Jersey. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So I always have this fond memory. I know I, if I smell that smell, even if I happen to catch it somewhere, I'm always brought back to my grandmother's house and that experience of being there. So yeah, I'm definitely down with the smells. <laughs> That's really fantastic. I mean, and you know, we, we tend to think of fragrant, you know, pleasant smells. But we here at, at Columbia, we have some Nobel Prize winning uh, neurologists who have been working on this question of smell. And, and smell is entirely a cultural, you know, sort of coding mechanism. In other words, we don't have any, uh, apparently, we don't have any innate negative reactions to smells. You know, people think that, for example, feces, we're, we're innately, you know, going to reject that smell. But in but in fact, the opposite is true. I mean, that in, in certain quantities, you know, we are very much attracted to, to that smell. And it's all a question of acculturation. And, and so that to me is, is very, very interesting, you know, because the way that we've been thinking about smell is as if it's sort of haphazard, but in fact, it's highly designed. And so the minute that 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 smell that you were so attracted to because of your acculturation, because you associated it with pleasant things like visiting your grandmother, you know, the minute that that smell is somebody's property, you know, then what is what is your relationship to it? You know, you would have to, in order to satisfy your desire of, of you know, recalling your grandmother, you would have to purchase it from somebody, right? It's, it's not your grandmother's house smell, it's IFF's smell. So it's it's a it, I think it's a really 
it's a component of architecture. And I think this comes up with every other component of architecture and it comes up in, in legal battles and so on, because, you know, you could talk about a window this way, you know, that it, it some of the who owns that window if you bought it from a manufacturer, you know, how you assemble it and so on. But for me, this is a, you know, smell is, is, is particularly important because it is so pervasive everywhere, even though we tend to think of our, our buildings and our lives as mostly deodorized. And maybe because they are, you know, highly deodorized, you know, we, we are so attracted to any smell. I always find it interesting that like, for example, deodorants that we put under our, our, our arms are actually not odorless. You know, they, they don't take away the odor. They are very fragrant. Well, it's like Febreze too. The the product that they claim removes odors from the air. It actually just has a very strong Febrezey smell. Right, right. That covers over every other pastes over every other smell. This topic is so interesting because just on the weekend, I I visited an open house and I walked into one room which appeared to have not been touched for for years, maybe decades. And it immediately transported me back to my father's childhood room at my grandmother's house that I used to love spending time in. And I mean, while it was a while it was a really negative experience to uh, to the people I was with walking into this room and smelling this kind of musty, dank smell, it was it was so pleasurable for me because it immediately brought back these a very architectural kind of sensation of being in a room that I hadn't been in for for, you know, 30 years. So let me pause right there, because I think this is a really important part of what we're, we're discussing about in terms of originality and, and, and so on, because we typically think of originality as something that is intentional, and therefore you can patent it and so on, you know, you, you, but what is so interesting about what you just said is that this was a completely unintentional experience. It totally took me by surprise. It took me back to a place that I had not even thought about in, in years. And, and that experience actually brought back this, this, uh, this room, this bedroom of my, of my father's in such vivid detail. I could see every little detail of the room just through the smell of this space that um, just, yeah, it, it connected those two spaces. See, if we, if we think of that in relationship to a photograph, right, as a, as a sort of a way of commemorating or, 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 or providing an aid to memory, you know, smell is, you know, a lot more effective if you, th- you know, if, if what you're saying is true, that you were able to recall the entire interior of this, of this apartment or this room, that to me is hugely important. And something that we, we very rarely talk about is this notion of an in- unintentional, let's think of that image in your mind as an object, you know, is is an unintentional object that all, all of a sudden happened in your, in your mind that if you had sat in, across the street and been like, okay, let me recall everything I can right now. What if, you wouldn't have come up with it, right? You needed that. You needed that smell in order to be able to do that. Alois Regal at the beginning of the 20th century was the first one to conceptualize the notion of the unintentional monument, which was really important for, for preservation theory. And he basically said, you know, look, We've been talking about monuments as if they are like, you know, a column or a sculpture that somebody did. But in fact, a a building like a farmhouse that was never intended to be a monument can be a monument. It's just an unintentional monument. Nobody intended it to be a monument, but we can think of it as a monument. And so he was the first one to begin to to imagine this question that 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 what can become a, a significant cultural object 
might not have been created, but might be something that might emerge, you know, unintentionally. And so for me, your experience of that is, is very interesting because all of a sudden it's a different understanding of what an unintentional monument is. I mean, it's the smell itself could be an unintentional monument. Well, this whole topic, especially the stuff that we've been talking about, smell, makes me think a lot about a book that I'm currently reading uh, by Oliver Sacks called Hallucinations. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but it, it talks about basically the science and uh, the, the science of hallucinations. And um, specifically, it talks about the hallucinations of smell, which is a type of hallucination which most people don't think about too much, but it's, it's common among people that lose their sense of smell. Their brain starts to compensate for that lack of smell by uh, bringing back familiar smells from, from their past in, in a very similar way to uh, visual hallucinations. That's amazing. It's a great book. I recommend it. Especially, I mean, it, it seems to be quite, there's some similarities to, to what you've talked about regarding monuments and artificiality. So that would suggest that we can't live without it. Well, I think once the brain becomes so accustomed to, you know, a certain sense, it, it's actually, there's a, uh, there's a syndrome called Charles Bonnet syndrome, which affects, uh, I believe, something about like 10 to 20% of people that lose their vision, where they, they start experiencing hallucinations because their brain is making up for that for that lack of vision. The brain doesn't want to believe that, that you can't see anymore. So it, it creates very realistic hallucinations that have also been proven as real visions through, you know, brain scans, as, as opposed to like an artificial vision. So anyways. That's really fascinating because obviously, you know, now we are, you know, at a moment in history where we're on the verge of having, you know, implants in to have people recover their sense of sight. And so the digital becomes part of the biological. But let me just go back to this question, you know, because it seems to me really important and something that I've been thinking about, this notion of what we can't live without, I, I think is really key because I tend to think of, of monuments and I tend to think of cultural objects in general as things we cannot live without because they are, it's such a strange thing. You know, why would, why do we need these things? You know, they're, I mean, real estate boards are constantly saying we don't need historic districts. We don't need monuments. Let's get rid of them. You know, well, why do we need them? I actually have an answer. I have an answer. And it comes from my friend, Sean Starowitz, who is an artist, that this is a quote from him. Culture is a protein, not a dessert. That we need culture, right? That's what we need. It, 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 the, everything else goes along with the fact that we have this cultural memory. Because if we don't have that, why have a civilization? Why do any of it? Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, I think one of the crazy things where if you follow the climate talks and, and so on, is the sense of, uh, you know, total dismay and, and a slight apocalyptic tinge to the whole thing, where in fact people are talking about the end of our civilization. Right. Like they, the end of the, the even the Chinese, the, the National Science Academy of, uh, of China published a report that that basically said that climate change is a civilizational threat to China. And to me, this is really interesting, a moment in culture when we cannot imagine a future, you know, when we are sort of really at a, at a sort of threshold moment of not being able to imagine a future. And I think that maybe the status of culture is, is related to that, because when you think of all the solutions for how to fix climate change, they're all technological solutions. They are only talking about technology. Let's carbon sequester, let's do this, let's do that. But the 
the most daring thing that politicians in, can come up with is basically to restore the atmosphere to what it was like 30 years ago. So like to, <laughs> to do a preservation move, you know, let's bring yeah. it back to a period of significance. But what they miss is all the cultural complexities that we've learned in, as preservationists come with any sort of restoration, that it's, it's quite complicated. And, you need, and, and those, those restorations need to accompany some sense of, of a cultural desire. And I think that that's where, let's say, these, these the culture, cultural objects help us imagine a future. And we're not talking about them. You know, what are the cultural objects that are going to help us imagine a future after climate change? Mm. You know, what are those monuments? And I think that's why you construct a monument. That's why you construct an object worthy of preservation to help you transition from one state of culture to another. I mean, I think of the Eiffel Tower, you know, the Eiffel Tower was meant to be demolished, but somehow Parisians decided, even though most of them thought it was ugly, that they couldn't live without it, that their vision of the future of Paris just was not possible or the future of France was not possible without without that structure. And they decided to preserve it. So I think we're not talking about that enough. I mean, what are the sorts of things that we cannot imagine the future without? And we're in this weird moment where we're imagining the future without everything. We're like, oh, well, without, let's imagine the future without polar bears. Let's imagine the future without insects and bees. Let's <laughs> imagine the future. You know, we'll, we'll come up with, why are we doing this? You know, why shouldn't we say, actually, you know what? We cannot imagine the future without polar bears. Let's do something about it. You know, let's figure out a way to, and, you know, it's like we're willing to sacrifice everything. It's almost like a dare, you know. To me, that's very strange in, in our cultural moment, you know, our, our sense that we are, and it's a sort of modernist thing, you know, that, that it's, a, I, I feel like it's a sort of lingering modernist, you know, ideology that, that, that in order to live, you should be able to sacrifice things. Otherwise, you're not modern, you know, you should be able to let go of the past, let go of this, let go of that. It seems to me like we've, we've come to a point where we need to re-examine that whole idea and to ask it from the other point of view. You know, certain things are necessary for us to live. You know, if culture is necessary, culture is not, I mean, there is no such a thing as culture in the end. I mean, because who's culture? You know, you're not culture, I'm not culture. You know, culture has to reify itself into some objects or living things, I suppose, you know, like you know, our image of, of, of animals and so on, even though that's terribly problematic and post-humanist theory has been, you know, working on that. But, but I mean, that's, that's what I'm interested in, you know. That's where I think we need this sort of creativity to think past originality, uh, you know, past the notion of originality that is about sacrificing things around it in order to construct something new. But and think about a notion of creativity as assembling a culture, enough cultural objects that are already existing in order to help us move forward and, and to imagine the future, to really like a landmark, you know, a landmark, literally something that helps you map out a world around it, you know, that world being the future, you know, we, we just cannot think of the future unless we have those landmarks. All we have are these dystopian science fiction movies, you know, that are that are about like not being able to have a future. So I would say that that's an area where, where perhaps a type of preservation point of view might be able to help 
you know, in architectures, sort of rethink the notion of originality slightly so that we might be able to contribute to these wider cultural debates or to the, to the state of culture today. Hey, Jorge, one last question. It's kind of, um, we've ended this discussion this way several times. What are, you, what are you reading right now and what are you listening to? What's got your attention right now in those areas? I, I've been reading this book called The Weather Experiment about the origins of, of climatology in the 19th century. It's a fascinating book about the emergence of, of the discipline of, of climatology. And it's amazing because you see the wealth of different individuals and interests and capacities and knowledges that, that had to come together in order to to build up what we now take for granted as a science. And it was, you know, there's it has some really fascinating passages that, for example, you know, look at the way in which artists contributed to climatology just by drawing clouds. So it, it, it looks very closely at the work of John Constable, a landscape painter in England, who was so precise in the way that he drew clouds that he was able to categorize them. And he was able to, to look at the paintings of other landscape painters and and tell you whether this painting was drawn at the moment before a rainstorm, right after the wind had changed, you know, just by looking at the at the way the clouds were on the sky and so on. So that to me is really fascinating because I think that contemporary art right now is again at this at this stage where it is beginning to do things that are quite unexpected and beginning to move into realms that it didn't move into before. And I'm very interested in all those artists that are working on existing objects as a departure point for their practice, because I take them very seriously as um, contributing to a new emerging science of, of preservation in the way that, for example, Constable contributed to the emergence of climatology. So that was my interest in that book. And listening to, I'm listening to podcasts a lot. What podcasts? Well, I listen to you guys. You know, all right. Yep. Yeah, I listen to the New York Review of Books, which I think is a really great, great podcast. I listen to, yeah, Studio 360, 99% Invisible, I think is a really great podcast. The Truth is another really interesting sort of fiction podcast. Yeah. So, a number of different podcast. Excellent. Well, we will make sure to include links to that book that, you, that you're reading and some of those podcasts in our show notes. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, that was a really fascinating talk that I feel like uh, we, we could keep on talking to you for the next two days, but uh, we'll have to end it. So thanks again. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our new Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcNet Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arcnet.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes and telling your friends about it. And also don't forget to subscribe to our one-to-one podcast that comes out every Monday featuring exclusive interviews with architects. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week.